Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Welcome to a new episode of The Developmental. My favorite part of hosting this podcast is that I get to invite brilliant people who know so much more than me on so many topics to share their wisdom and I get to pick their brains and enjoy the insights alongside all of you listening. This episode was an intellectual and emotional treat, both because my guest is a brilliant thinker who does the hard work of walking the talk and because the topic she introduces has helped me discover a missing piece of adult development theory that I had not come across before, despite doing my own PhD on this topic. I love it when I find and get to fill gaps in my own knowledge, and for those of you who love adult development, this conversation will most likely bring something new. My guest, Kate Arms, has for over 35 years been studying the question of how to create social groups that thrive as communities while community members thrive as individuals. She has deep interests in human physiology and neurodiversity, the role of ritual and art in personal transformation, collective creativity, change management and governance structures that support individual and collective evolution. Kate has been a professional coach for over a decade and has been mentoring and teaching coaches since 2016. From the very beginning, her coaching practice focused on coaching creators and innovators, twice exceptional and profoundly gifted adults, and parents of twice exceptional kids. Her current portfolio of work includes private coaching, teaching and guiding coaches at the Neurodiversity Coaching Academy and organizational leadership development and agile coaching. In all her work, she focuses on transformational culture building and designing systems to support adaptive change that sticks. Her book, Lift, A Coach Approach to Parenting, presents an approach to parenting that helps parents bring out the best in their family relationships as they help their children navigate the challenges of growing up in the modern world. Kate holds a BA in Theatre and Biopsychology from Cornell University and a JD from Harvard Law School. She is credentialed as an International Coach Federation, PCC, a certified IC Agile expert in enterprise coaching and a certified professional coactive coach. She is a graduate of the Coactive Leadership Program. Kate introduces us to the work of Polish psychologist Kazimierz Dobrowski, a brilliant developmentalist, virtually unknown outside of the gifted and neurodivergent community, whose work centered on exploring the phenomenon of positive disintegration. This is a nice way of saying what happens when humans fall apart. He explored how developmental growth unfolds through cycles of disintegration and reintegration. I talk with Kate about why such moments are vital to our long-term growth and at the same time incredibly difficult to navigate. We also explore why coaches could benefit from an understanding of this psychological process and all the painful emotions that arise as we break down and then break through. We explore how, as coaches, we might support our clients to navigate the messy spaces towards a wiser, more mature, more balanced self, and how we might help ourselves do the same. I'd like to add a content warning to this episode. We do refer to mental illness and suicide in this conversation, which may be emotionally confronting or triggering to some of our listeners. If you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out to a healthcare professional or call a local helpline. I'm hoping you'll enjoy this conversation about how navigating some of the hardest emotions can actually transform our lives in positive ways. So without further ado, here's Kate. Kate, welcome on The Developmental. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. 
It's it's been a little while coming this conversation and we were talking before we started the recording that it feels I know you already through our common friend Tracy Winter who was also on the podcast and who's inspired me so much and continues to do so who keeps talking about you all the time. I'm so excited that I actually get to meet you and learn and pick your beautiful complex brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's that mutual admiration society before we get to know each other thing, because Tracy has been, oh my God, you want to talk to Elise? She's so cool. I do feel a bit of the pressure of the expectations she has of us in this conversation. So to put it out there, we'll do our very best. But um, <laughs> not aiming to be cool, aiming to learn something cool. And which I think we will, because I think there's an intersection of fields that both of us have been playing in that haven't really been explored in that intersection. So I hope this conversation will yield some interesting insights. I hope so. And if it's not interesting insights, interesting things to dig into further to get to the insights for sure. And and it'll be live because we haven't actually caught up before this to explore any of this stuff. So (laughs) it's very much stream of consciousness material. I'll start with a bit of context of where we're coming from in this conversation and what the intention is. Both yourself and Tracy, I I know you're working together and you're doing such amazing work in the neurodivergence coaching space. Tracy was the, the person who challenged my thinking around, if you think of adult development, do you consider neurodivergence? And I actually think that in the classical vertical development space, we don't really talk about neurodivergence um, as much or at all, I would dare say. So that felt like really breaking ground around what are the peculiarities and the interesting intersections and the lines of development. And through that, Tracy introduced me to Dabrowski's work and the gifted work. And then she said, Kate is the person who taught me about this stuff and she is the ultimate nerd on this stuff. And then when I went and started digging a little bit, I realized there's a whole bubble of developmental psychology and exploration that I had never heard about. That excited me beyond belief. It felt like I discovered a treasure that was in, probably in plain sight, but I had no idea existed. It's not in plain sight. I learned from Dr. Chris Wells, who now runs the Dabrowski Center in Colorado. And one of the things that she has been super, super committed to for as long as I've known her is just plain getting the word out. Wow. Uh, Because in the places, and you mentioned gifted, gifted education is where Dabrowski is best known. And it's not actually a great fit in a lot of ways. Uh, And she's been trying to broaden the expansiveness of where it is for as long as I've known her. I feel I'm forwarding her work by talking to you. And I'm so keen to learn and I've got so many questions for you. It might feel like this is the ultimate nerdy conversation. I think uh, a typical listener who is uh, maybe not interested necessarily in the going deep, deep, deep into the academic aspects of this type of work might go, what's this all about? What it is about for me is that I think the more we can understand human development from different angles and maybe different from the traditional ones that we've been talking about over and over again, the more we can all gain and learn and grow. And I also think the gifted angle is an interesting one because if I think of a lot of my clients, I think I work with more neurodivergent clients than I have acknowledged previously because it's not a topic that people necessarily explicitly bring into coaching or gifted clients, people who just think differently and maybe they felt a bit odd all their lives, a bit different in some way. I'm hoping this conversation will also illuminate some things for them too. I hope so. The thing that is fabulous about Jabrowski's work, it is it's so nuanced and so complex and so multi-layered that someone who is really wanting to nerd out on theory and get intellectual has plenty of material to work with. And in fact, the challenge is often to simplify it and to figure out what is practical. And so it's a very interesting space and it's very, very attractive to a lot of gifted people because of the complexity and because of the nuance. Mm-hmm. But that also is hard to grasp initially for a lot of people. So I will do my best 
to simplify and you will do your best to ask me questions <laughs> to yeah, help me do that. I will. And I think perhaps the best, always the best place to start is I don't think we do the work we do by accident. There's a story there. There's a personal story of growth, of becoming. What drew you to this type of work around coaching neurodivergent folks and particularly coaching gifted folks, which if neurodivergence is starting to be talked about in the coaching world, I think giftedness is still very much not a conversation. And I'm really interested to explore both. How did you come to do what you do? What's your story, Kate? So my story is full of lots of different bits and pieces. The simple piece of it is I can't remember a time that I wasn't somehow in the space of transformation, in the space of things don't seem to be thriving. Uh, I know that that's actually not true, but I had an existential crisis when I was four and my family moved from the UK to the US and I started kindergarten and the culture shock was just disorienting in a way that nobody around me understood. It was just really, really strange. And I started passing as American. I changed my accent. Wow. Conscious. I Did you remember? Would, you remember that? You remember your experience? I don't though? remember it. But my father remembers very, very clearly. I was an early talker and very, very verbal. And the first parent teacher conversation in kindergarten in this new country, the teacher said, well, Kate's lovely, but she never talks unless I directly address her. And my parents were, who is this child? And by Christmas, I was talking in class with an American accent and at home with a British accent. And slowly they merged together and I gave, got rid of my British accent. So I was in this space of who am I and what does society de desire for me? And how do I navigate this complexity by kindergarten, by five? That came with all kinds of identity crisis that just wasn't managed well because nobody's looking for that kind of existential angst in a five-year-old. I'll interject for a second here because this touches me on such a personal level because we moved from Romania to Australia when my daughter was three and a half and mm. she was also a very, very early talker and she was very verbal and she didn't speak any English. So when we got here, she found herself in a place where she couldn't be understood or express herself. I, I experienced her angst as a mom, but now listening to you, it just got me thinking, wow, but perhaps these will be conversations we'll be having in 10 years going back. That was her first existential crisis for sure. And it did take her only six months to actually start speaking English. And now it's become her primary language. But that was such a hard, disorienting time, full of pain and tears and anger and grief. And so that was my foundation. I never really felt comfortable. We went back and forth between England and the States a few times, and I never I never again felt comfortable in England. And it took me a very long time to feel comfortable in the States. And now I'm living in Canada, so I even left that behind. <laughs> and I'm more comfortable now as an outsider than I am as an insider. And that actually is important as a coach, because part of what I do as a coach is be the outsider reflecting back what I'm seeing from the outside. Yep. So it is part of how I came to coaching. The existential crisis became overwhelming at my teenage years. Uh, we had another move that was massively disorienting just before that. And I became a suicide survivor at 15. And the treatment that I received after that was not very useful. It was Heavily medicine-based, heavily medical. How do we fix you? It was not at all talk therapy-based. No sense of identity work on this. No help navigating this. Just take the pills and we'll get the drugs right and you'll be fine. And that was even more disorienting than <laughs> having been done before. And so I started this basic self-education piece about how to go from miserable to thriving when nobody around me was actually giving me tools to work with. I started building community around me and just got really good at building communities from 
people who didn't really fit building yeah. the outside of the community, which of course means that inadvertently I'm working with neurodivergent people um, because <laughs> the quirky and I'm very articulate. I am very quick uh, and very verbal. And so the really smart quirky people gravitated to me. And so I just, everywhere I went, started collecting twice exceptional friends. Gifted. I wanted to ask you to please clarify what that means for, for people yeah, who yes, might not twice, know what that is. Twice exceptional means gifted because that intellectual cognitive processing capacity uh, has a real impact on how you handle other learning challenges or other disabling characteristics characteristics. Um, and so all of the neurodivergences typically sort of fall in that bucket, but also mood disorders and physical uh, disabilities and that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, it's, it's a heightened capacity in some way, but then an obstacle or a setback in a different, in a different area of development. Yeah. And the, the biggest thing that one of the developmental pediatricians that I have worked with over the years says is the problem is these kids are so smart that they know exactly how disabling their challenge is. And they know exactly what they would be capable of if they didn't, they have, didn't the- have it. And so depression, anxiety, frustration, shame, embarrassment, just become the water that they swim in. And they became the water that I swam in. And Over a bunch of years, I tried a bunch of things and I acquired a lot of tools. And the thing that really changed my life was when I started being coached. And coaching worked where therapy hadn't and medication hadn't and changing what I was doing for a living hadn't, but coaching did. As soon as I discovered this miracle thing, yeah. I was okay, let me spread this. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'm wondering what why do you think that was? What do you think it was that that made it work so well for you? It started from the assumption that I wasn't broken. It started from the assumption that I had wisdom. My coach couldn't keep up with me intellectually and didn't care. Their ego was totally not offended by my brain working the way it did, which is a a very common thing with people trying to help gifted people who are struggling is that if they're not as sort of cognitively fast and capable of dealing with that level of complexity and nuance, it can be threatening to their professional identity to sort of see the bigger picture. And the other thing is that piece of coaching that asks the question, what do you really want? Mm -hmm. I'd never been given permission to want what I wanted at the depth that coach gave me permission for. I've wanted to change the world and make the world a better place since I was six. Uh, I wanted to make the world a more inviting place for smart oddballs since I was four or five. And it felt really audacious to say, I have worthiness enough that the world should be better for me. And since the world hasn't changed to make that possible, I'm going to go and I'm going to make the world a better place. Oh, I love that, Kate. Oh, I love so that's that. What, I'm still working on do that, doing that. And I still have audacious goals. What's it like being on the other side of the fence? Not that there is any fence, obviously, but what's it like to be in that space where you hold space for others in the way that first coach held space for you? Um, it's an honor and a privilege. It is profoundly moving it warms my heart Uh, I have at the root of my childhood wounds this this I don't belong here feeling and I give people 
belongingness in the coaching session. And it just feels like this miracle that I went from that belief that I didn't belong to someone who actually says, no, there's nobody who doesn't belong. And I don't just say it. I actually feel it in my bones. I feel it in my bones when you say it. And and there's so much of of that story that that resonates um having been the the version of the oddball myself (laughs) um and i think there are so many people who hold and harbor that feeling uh and maybe never talk about it openly i would love to to kind of dig into what is it that you've learned along the way about once you create these spaces what happens and and how do people actually grow and transform to the point where maybe they're able to hold that space of belonging for themselves which I assume that is the final goal or it is one of our goals as coaches to really empower our clients to not need us to make ourselves redundant as I say (laughs) and I love that you go there because it's one of the things that makes a difference between a really great coach and a good coach is we say that we want to make ourselves redundant and it's bad for business. (laughs) It's not actually bad for business, but when we're new coaches, it feels bad for business. When we still don't counterintuitive to say, I'm going to work to really empower this client to not need my services as soon as possible. But the truth is that the sooner they don't need us anymore, the more likely they are to refer all their friends to us. Absolutely. But, but in those early years, oh my gosh, did I hold, did I be, oh my gosh, they're they're so ready to go and I'm so happy. And also I need a replacement. And now I'm just like, you know what, the replacements will come. Uh, I think this is actually a really great time to sort of bring a couple of Dabrowski pieces. Bring it on. the theory, the theory is called the theory of positive disintegration. And the disintegrated piece is that piece I was talking about. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I belong. Am I British? Am I American? How do I fit? I don't belong. I don't know who I am. I don't know what my identity is. Then the medication sort of really disintegration because it was actually changing my emotions without having any sense of agency around it. It was just, oh, I'm a bag of skin. This is what I am, a bag of skin. And you you titrate differently and I feel differently. And oh, look, I'm just sort of this little bag of chemistry. Just put me in the lab and I'll, um, <laughs> I'll let mm-hmm. you watch and you'll tell me when I'm right. And and that doesn't feel very empowering or, or agency filled. The theory says fundamentally that this can be terrifying and it can look awful and it's easy to pathologize it. And some of it's, some of it, I mean, it's suicidal. Schizophrenia are, are two of the populations that Dombrowski worked with a lot in his early years. And his belief was that for people who are sensitive internally and externally, whose nervous systems are highly reactive to the world, when you when they come into counter with difficulties in the world, it's totally normal to get upset. And it's totally normal to struggle to find a way through. And that with the right help in the worst forms of disintegration, it's actually the seeds of a positive transformation. It's actually the, can be the seeds of a vertical development. And, and he uses a levels model and he talks about sort of unilevel transformation, which is very similar to what we would talk about horizontal development. Um, And then he talks about the third level, which has a multi-level disintegration, which is where There starts to be this sense of how things ought to be, this sort of sense of the kind of person I should be becoming, the kind of person that will work for this society. And for Dabrowski, it's a very eventually transpersonal, spiritual, empathy based, community feeling kind of end point if you get all the way to the top of Mm -hmm. the, the levels of development, if you get all the way through. 
Um, but this third level is really, really painful. This third level is where you wrestle with what do I believe? What does society want for me? I think I should be this kind of person, but I'm acting like that kind of person. And so now I'm upset with myself. I'm ashamed of myself. I have to figure out how to act in a way. Oh, and all my friends don't like me because I'm starting to not do what's normally acceptable because it's out of line with what I'm discovering are these higher values. Aspirations or values. And so this third level is this very mucky middle of wrestling with, do I become the person that I'm being called to become from this internal developmental dynamisms they get called. And the third factor is really what they call this drive to keep growing, to keep going. It's not until you reconcile that and start practicing being in alignment with your values and start having this, okay, this is the direction I'm going. I'm going to fall off every now and then, but I'm going to get back on the path. Oh, I'm going to fall off the bit, but I have a direction and I know where I'm going and I have compassion with myself when I fall off. And I just know that this is my journey. Then level five is this sort of fully integrated. I actually have become the kind of person that I was being drawn to be. And the descriptions of that level five fully integrated start start to sound like saints. They are the sort of completely at peace with myself and also doing good for the world and pro-social, but also deep self-care and self-respect uh, as part of it. So no dissociation at all and an ease with it and having done all your shadow work and all that kind of stuff. And in terms of how we go through it, one of the things that Dabrowski is really clear about is that multi-level disintegration, that spontaneous, really mucky middle, it's hard to navigate without a guide or an advisor. In that place, somebody who comes on the outside and says, you're going to get through this, and who understands psychology and philosophy and developmental psychology and psychopathology from a lens of being able to say, you're going to be able to get through this. And here are some things that you can do. And that at the very beginning, you need someone who is further ahead of you that can do it. Right. And teaches and gives you that sort of philosophical framework and gives you the permission to see the world through this lens of, Oh, I'm in the middle of a mucky space. And that's okay. And that's okay. And then as the internal dynamism of the internal directing center makes the values assessment and starts having enough capacity to keep you on track, then the guide's job is to back away. And the next piece, Dabrowski terms for it, is auto-psychotherapy. It's that self you have that self-reflective practice where you're able to to hold space for yourself in a sense. I, I, I'm i sitting here listening to you, Kate, and if you could visualize my brain <laughs> right now, it's uh, like a, a fireworks explosion because I've got so many simultaneous dots connecting and questions <laughs> popping up. So I'll, I'll try to make some sort of sense of the mess. Go somewhere and we'll see where it leads. <laughs> I think I think it's it's fascinating what you share. So uh, I I did a tiny bit of homework on Dabrowski. So Kazimierz Dabrowski was a Polish psychologist for those of you who listen and want to look him up. And we'll put some links in the show notes, but he's almost like this invisible figure in developmental psychology as we were talking when we started. I did my whole PhD in adult development and I've never encountered him. My big insight from my research was that emotions actually play a huge role in development, something that in the developmental bubble or playground that I've been playing in is not that much talked about, the role of emotions and the role of something that Jack Mazirov, the uh, father of transformative learning, used to call disorienting dilemmas. And Mezirov had this idea that transformation starts with a disorienting dilemma. And we know from the research in adult development that that moment when your world doesn't make sense to you anymore is also a moment of opportunity. So when I found uh, the words positive disintegration, it just blew my mind because essentially this seems like the perfect pair or the perfect complement to the disorienting dilemma. 
the disorienting dilemma is the triggering event, but then what actually happens inside, in Dabrowski's words, as you beautifully just explained, is that disintegration. And I think it's interesting to maybe zoom in on the word positive because it doesn't feel positive at all when it's happening. It's actually it's extremely painful. And it's, yeah. it, it's filled by uh, those emotions that in my research, and I borrowed this term from a Finnish researcher called Kaisu Malki, who calls them edge emotions. Yes. All that grief, all that anxiety, all that fear, all that shame, they're edge emotions because they're at the edge of your becoming, of your becoming a more mature, wiser, more integrated version of yourself. But our instinct is not to lean into those emotions, it's actually to run away from them, right? To numb them, to medicate them, to just not feel them. The thing that made the thing to willfully not notice it. I mean, this is the cognitive dissonance that I didn't actually see that my brain just filtered it out. Uh, it's, it's right in here. It's so important to talk about the fact that the positive is positive potential. Not but positive experience when you're experiencing it. a lot of positive experience. <laughs> yes. And it's not just once. That's the other thing is that I've already in my story sort of pointed at a bunch of it's different. It's cyclical. It's cyclical. And what my understanding is and my experience is, and I think it's important to name that both the understanding from the theory and my personal lived experience is that the first time it happens, it's massively disorienting. And if you don't have the support and if you don't have guidance, um, you can get stuck there for a very long time. Uh, and even when you put yourself back together a bit, the next time it happens is likely to be still pretty rough. And you actually get skilled at going through disintegration. And so as you go through sort of these bigger chunks and you get more aligned with this personality ideal that is somehow emerging through you, the adjustments get smaller. Is it when, also because you anticipate in a sense, you know what that experience feels like, so you're not as scared of it as much maybe as you, you were before? So, you stop being so scared of, of it. You start recognizing that those edge emotions are a sign of the potential. So you actually start being excited a little bit about the fact that you're in this uncomfortable period. I've got a coaching partner. We do peer coaching once a week and we've been doing it for almost 10 years now. And about three years ago, we started coming to our sessions and whoever was leading the session would say, so what do you want to focus on today? And the other person was, well, the thing I don't want to focus on is, so let's dive in. And it's that piece of, I don't want to go there because it feels uncomfortable. Yeah. But You would lean into it. You'd look for it. it. You start looking yeah. for it. It's very interesting you say that because one thing that we know from the research in vertical development is that later stage individuals start to look for their own discomfort. So in a sense, that is a mark of development. It's when you're able to become aware of the value of discomfort and then you're looking for it. And I love the way you frame it. It's what do I not want to talk about? That's the thing that I need to talk about. Or what do I don't want to look at? That's what I need to look at. There are two things that I, I found super intriguing in Dabrowski's frame that I'd love you to talk a little bit more about, which I don't think are present in other developmental theories that I'm familiar with. Um, but interestingly, one of them is present in the Montessori frame, which I'm familiar with as a mom raising a kid who's been educated in that frame since she was born. So developmental potential is one of these notions. And mm -hmm. Maria Montessori had this word for developmental potential. She called it horme. So she had this belief that humans have this vital energy flowing through them that drives them forward towards more and more growth and development, just like an acorn has in it the vital energy that can turn it into an oak if it's planted in the right soil and it has the right conditions. So when I saw developmental potential, I immediately associated it with that notion, which for me as a parent was transformative because it helped me 
follow my child rather than try to direct her, believing that she's got that energy in her. And I'm seeing now eight years in, I still have a lot to go, but eight years is enough time to validate a little bit of that. And the hormone is there, the developmental potential is there. So can you talk a little bit about what this developmental potential is? How do you see it? Because it's something intrinsic to the individual, right? It, it helps shape the developmental journey, but it's there to begin with. So what is it? What's your understanding of it? Sort of life energy directing force. I love that you use the acorn example because the acorn metaphor, James Hillman used, and I read James Hillman's work when I was in college and years before I got any wind of Dabrowski. And that image just really struck me at that point that the acorn doesn't need to know it's going to become an oak. It just needs to not be eaten soon long enough to actually grow. Uh, So I think that is really part of the developmental potential, that actual energy driving force. Dombrowski actually uses the factors to, to talk about a little bit more. And he calls all of the bits and pieces that make up that driving force dynamisms. And the first factor is our natural survival needs. And the second factor is the, the what society tells us we should be. And the third factor is the one that helps us try and figure out how we should be given these other things. But the developmental potential piece is really interesting because what Dombrowski is talking about with potential is that there is this move towards development that is innate in human beings. The other piece that's part of the puzzle and where it really fits with neurodivergence is the overexcitabilities. That was the second thing I wanted to ask you about, but if you want to link them now, maybe this is the time. And I'm going to put them together because they're really connected. So the overexcitabilities is this idea that there are just some nervous systems that are more sensitive to stimulation. And that sensitivity can happen in a couple of different ways. It can be that just more data from the outside world gets into our bodies, or it can be that when the normal amount of data gets in, we just have a bigger internal reaction. And these can cause so all super kinds of- So empathic people can, uh, empathic uh, emotional, people emotion really- can be an overexcitability or sensory overexcitability. Or um, that sort of model, HSP is definitely in the excitable realm. Uh, He's got five different categories. The psychomotor is very much that impulsiveness, that drive to follow our impulses that is in attention uh, deficit uh, disorder, uh, that it's the same energy. As soon as I've got the novelty stimulation, I'm gone. And so I can't stay with things that are uncomfortable because I've, I've gone so far. That's one of the sensitivities. Imaginational, just the ability to come up with whether it is fantasy stories or the looking at the world and going, oh, if I build this machine and do this with it, I can make this impact happen. That ability to imagine things that aren't actually right in front of you. For some people, that is just enormous and it takes up an enormous amount of their brain energy intellectual. So I would hazard a guess that you and I have intellectual oversight abilities and that we get an idea and we see it and we want to know everything about it. Uh, I'm a book hoarder. I I just fly to books like uh, Moths Fly to Light, but then it's a struggle to finish everything that I start. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm. the way that the overexcitabilities play into developmental potential is Adler had this idea that if you start developing, it's going to take you half as long again as how old you are when you start. So the the older you start, the less far you're going to go. And the younger you start, the further you're going to go. These developments take time. And you and I know that there are some things that can be done to help them happen faster, but they even so they take time. The developmental potential is how early do you start? How When is that first disintegration? And for a lot of people, traditionally, if you look back a few generations, it's that midlife crisis. It's that they don't even start till they're in their 50s. Because life takes a a sort of a predictable path dictated by society. And you follow the path until you get to that point where you go, what am I doing with the rest of my life? And the more sensitive you are 
in a variety of these ways, the more likely you are to encounter one of these disorienting dilemmas early. And so the more likely you are to start on the path earlier. So your daughter and I started when we were single digits because we had these moves to places with foreign languages. And I know English is English on both sides of the Atlantic, but the amount of miscommunication is plenty. And so the idea of developmental potential is that there's this drive, there's this directionality. And the more liable to get disrupted you are, the more likely it is that you're going to get there um, because you're going to get more opportunities. You're going to be disturbed by life maybe more readily than people who are maybe not as sensitive if you've got those sensitivities. And I think from a coaching perspective, Kate, there's something that I've integrated as almost a mantra in my own coaching, but then in my training and mentoring of other coaches, this idea that perhaps the most fertile ground to be in as a coach is to really truly deeply believe in the potential of the people that you're supporting. So I really extend this unconditional positive regard to all of my clients because I can't know what their developmental potential is. I'm curious, what's your perspective as a coach? Does that impact your mindset? Does it shape in any way the way you approach your role? Because they might or might not have had those positive disintegrations to the point where we we come together in a coaching process. So how do we be the developmental catalysts that, that really help our clients harness that developmental potential? What have you learned as a coach? So I've learned that it depends on whether they're currently disintegrated or not. So the moment, the timing of the coaching? My client comes to me and they're currently in this lost space. Um, Everything's a mess. I don't know what to do. Uh, There's often a sense of hopelessness. There's this massive confusion. Um, I tried therapy, but it didn't seem to help because it's not actually that they're broken. It's actually just that they're going through a developmental process. And some therapists are better than others at helping through that process. And it doesn't fit into the North American insurance model of paying for um, therapy for sure. Uh, And so they're like, I'm lost. They need reassurance that what they're going through is normal, that they need help identifying what the values are that they're growing into. They need help practicing living in alignment with those values. They need self-compassion when they fall off the path. They need to be told over and over again that when you're rewiring your brain, you actually have to go through the process of doing the repetitions so that the brain rewires itself and that it will become a habit. And that's what they need in those coaching sessions. So there's a lot of affirmation. There's a lot of permission. There's a lot of seeing their beauty. There's a lot of just knowing their potential is there, that holding the faith that they can do this when they don't have it for themselves, the way I think of it. And so for the people who come to me disintegrated, that's the kind of container that they need. People who come to me stuck, they just want to change this particular thing and think they want horizontal coaching. They think that they just want a new skill. The people who come to me are really smart. Um, Clients find their coaches and the people who come to me hear me speak very articulately. And so I get tend to get really smart. And if it was easy to do the horizontal growth. These people are so good at learning. They would have done horizontal growth. They don't need help with horizontal growth. So when they come to me, I actually know that my job is to help them have the courage to let themselves disintegrate because I know that the way to get from where they are to where they're going to be is going to be vertical development. I know that they have to feel safe enough with me to trust that I wouldn't pull them to pieces if it wasn't in service of helping them put themselves together better. And this is such delicate work. This is where sort of trauma awareness and understanding about how to help people get back together is really, really important. And this is where you want to sell it. You want to make sure that they make a commitment to get through that first disintegration and not just do one-off ad hoc coaching sessions because they'll get to the point where they fall apart and they'll be, I'm not coming back to coaching. I do want to throw in the 
potentially confronting question that I hear a lot in the coaching space. And I know you train and mentor coaches and we're both affiliated with ICF. So we've got these ethical guidelines and the question pops up every time. Where do you draw the line between coaching and therapy? When do you refer clients? How do you partner with therapists? How do you know as a coach that the kind of disintegration your client is going through is in the realm of coaching? How do you keep it in the realm of coaching? What does that look like from your perspective? So so the first thing is that when I am pushing people and I know it's challenging them, I'm never attached to them accepting the challenge. Because if I'm attached to them accepting the challenge and I'm attached to them actually barking on vertical development, I'm harming them. I'm I'm poking at them to harm them in in a way. Um, Because I make then I'm making it about my agenda and I'm not making it about their agenda. So actually the questions that I'm going to ask are what are you willing to say no to to make this change? What are you not willing to say no to? to make this change. Um, Cause that is curiosity about how badly do they want this change? Because if they want this change, and then I can show them, if you want this, you're going to have to stretch in this direction. And then they get to choose and they might actually decide, oh, you know what? I've decided I don't want that anymore. So that's one of the things that I do. So I very early on in my coaching career, connected with a bunch of therapists. Chris Wells is a social worker, licensed therapist. And I talk to her from time to time. There are a couple of other people that I've met through the community that supports the gifted. And I check in with them when I think that I am out of my depth. They have always told me that if I'm standing in the coaching principles and I'm not trying to fix them, and I don't see myself as an expert, and they are making progress towards their goals, that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And if I start realizing that we're not making progress, then that's probably time to refer. If they're looking to me for expertise about anything other than being a coach and the coaching process and how the, the inquiry enables them to learn themselves, and it's just If they start looking for me to give them answers about themselves, then I say, you probably need a therapist. And if I'm noticing my own body being dysregulated over and over by a client, if I'm noticing that I stop being able to hold a really deep coaching presence, then I know that I'm out of my depth and then Mm -hmm. it's time. This brings to mind a concrete example where I've navigated that disintegration space with a client where I was engaged by the company and she was a senior executive and she was going through a rough patch in her career. So she needed the support to figure out her next step. But then when we came together, I found out that she was also going through a divorce at the same time. So her personal life was in a tough, dark space. And... This client started therapy at about the same time that she started coaching. We figured out together there's a lot in the past that you actually need to unpack as part of this unraveling, and I'm not going to be able to help you there. But there's a lot looking into the future that we can actually explore together. So it became this dance between myself and her therapist, whom I've never actually met, but I felt we were really teaming up because she was going to therapy and understanding links to disintegrations from the past and trauma and healing. There was a lot of healing she was doing, healing work in that therapy process. But then there was a lot of forward thinking. And what does this mean right now in my life and my career? And how do I put these pieces together right here in the present? So I I wonder if this temporal focus also plays a role in the way you look at this. Because for me, it was so helpful. It felt like you're unraveling right here and right now. So there's sense-making to be made right here, right now. But as part of the unraveling, a lot of missing threads or pieces from the past pop up where a great therapist can be so much help to tie those threads together in coherent ways. And those two processes actually complement each other really beautifully. The thing that I say to my clients quite frequently when something comes up that connects to their past and they see the connection, if they want to go into the past, what I say over and over again is, I don't care how you got here. I care that you are here and you need to move forward. How can I 
help you see what's happening now and wrestle with it in a way that you can move forward. And sometimes they say it's important to them to understand the connection to the past. And if they do that and they understand the connection and they can see how it's getting in their way and they've already got enough distance that they have that self-awareness, then I see that self-awareness as part of their present self-understanding. Resource for the present. And so then we can have the conversation about how is this different? How are you more skillful than you were then? What can you do differently this time? What didn't work for you then? What did work for you then that you want to keep? And we can have that resourcing question about how do you move forward from here? Sometimes they don't have that self-awareness and they get sucked into it. And that's when I'll be like, this is a thing that is out of my depth. Uh, And sometimes they will dissociate a bit. And if they dissociate and I can't get them quickly back into their bodies to the present moment, then if that has to go to the the therapist, if I can get them quickly back into their bodies, then I'm okay. Now we're back in the present and we can start that separation piece Mm -hmm. again. So I'm very, very carefully looking all the time. I'm aware of how regulated they are, how present they are in their bodies because mm-hmm. um, this stuff touches such touches those those deep psychological defense mechanisms. Yeah. I think I think all of these distinctions are so valuable and useful to make. And I know it's an ongoing conversation and I think it's a conversation that carries a lot of heat. So hopefully this is an invitation for reflection. What I'd love to maybe zooming out of of this conversation, Kaden, almost so My experience of coming across developmental theory was like an opening up of a whole new understanding, both of the potential of human beings and how how much we can actually grow, but also also this discovery in my own PhD journey of emotions as catalysts for development transformed my understanding of the value of the struggle. And I'm curious, what have you gained as as a human going through your own life journey from integrating this developmental perspective and coming across Dabrowski's work and really understanding all of these nuances of the triggers and mechanisms and potentialities and sensitivities and all of that complexity? How has it shaped you and your, how have you grown from it? Maybe that's the question. It's, it's It's a really, really great question. So I came to coaching through the arts, through theater, through dance, through the body. My very first coaching modality was through using improvisational dance forms as self-discovery. So I am, I came to coaching through the body, through the emotions and through poetry and metaphor and started doing the kind of more traditional talk coaching when I was getting stuck with my gifted clients coming from that approach because their ability to stay out of their body completely and to sound totally rational about why it was unnecessary was it was just beyond my skill set at that point and so I needed some language and some tools to figure out how to get underneath that incredible rationalization and protection from feeling uncomfortable. I'm laughing because (laughs) for a long time, I used to say that my body is a vehicle to carry my brain around. And I actually believed it. Right. Right. (laughs) And so so I was getting stuck. I was getting stuck at that moment and I needed some tools to actually go directly at the beliefs with the people who, and do some of that cognitive challenging. So then I had some language and some tools there. And then I discovered Dabrowski's work. The actual learning of Dabrowski's work gave me language to articulate things that I'd already intuited and that I'd already discovered from lived experience, but didn't know how to talk about. And now I can talk about it and being able to talk about it, particularly with this beautiful, complex, multi-layered theory that because Dembrowski worked with such suffering people in the psychopathology kind of world that's so, so suffering, um, taking it to a, a, an adult who's basically got their stuff together and is um, sort of reasonably normally levels of neurotic, it's like a walk in the park 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I mean, it's still uncomfortable, but it comparatively compared to sort of what this theory was developed in. And it's so complex and so nuanced and with so many pieces that my intellectually gifted, defended clients, they can't get around it. It captures everything. It hits all of their objections. It it gives me a tool to say it's safe. This is rational. And then to make the case that there's a purpose for doing the hard work of feeling these feelings. If you come to me as a client and you have been in your head and not touching your body for 50 years and you're really good at your job and you've just been promoted to the one that is stretching you, but you were really good until you got this promotion and you don't know why you're lost now. Like the level of complexity in your job, you're why is this one throwing me off? And I know there's something in your body that is something that you don't want to unravel because it's protecting you from something. It's protecting you from feeling something really uncomfortable. I have to make a pretty good argument that it's going to be worth opening that door. You need the business case for feeling. (laughs) I need the business case for opening the door and letting and, and asking them to look at stuff that has not felt useful. Yeah. Um, I I wish and- people could see you now because the the evil genius nerdy genius twinkle in your eye as you talk about <laughs> how cool it is to really over nerd out the very nerdy clients is just beautiful to watch. It's all in service of helping them become the people that they really want to be and that they're scared of becoming and because it's really uncomfortable. And when we open the door to our emotions, we're terrified that we're going to get flooded by all of the emotions that we have ever not felt. And it's actually possible that we can do that. And we actually do need a safe container and we need someone to help us hold it, contain it so that we can just open up a piece Uh, Because otherwise it's Pandora's box. If you're a senior executive at the top of your career struggling with a promotion, the last thing you can afford is to open that kind of chaos in your life. I believe you've just articulated perhaps one of the top fears that I hear from my own executive coaching clients around tapping into the emotional space. It's what if we can't get out? What if I open the door and then I can't close it again? And and the good news, or in, in my experience, I feel there is almost this natural protective mechanism that most of the time that's not going to happen. Your psyche has its own internalized brakes to slow down the avalanche. But then that safe holding space you're talking about that a skillful coach or, or person who accompanies you through that process can add to it, can actually help channel that energy. It's really fascinating to me how the gateway to more complexity of thought and of action, which is what a, in, in organizational context, a lot of clients and teams and companies as a whole are looking for is actually the path to that goes through this messy emotional space that nobody wants to tap into. Everybody would love to get that next level perspective that allows them to operate skillfully in complexity without having to feel any of the nasty feelings. And I guess the... <laughs> core message if there's one of this conversation is there's no way out but through that there's no way you're gonna get into that next level perspective if you don't allow yourself to feel your feelings so you might as well start doing that work is that a fair statement to make the sooner you start the sooner that you will actually get through one of the phrases that gets used a lot is the you need to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. And it's that you have that that ease it's, and space. It's said a lot, around. but I feel, I feel it's almost devoid of, I mean, people say that a lot, but are we actually willing to do that? Right. And most of us, most of us struggle with that. And I don't actually think that it's about being comfortable, being uncomfortable. That's my issue the, with that statement. It's not comfortable ever. It's not comfortable but there becomes an ease and a spaciousness around the discomfort. And somehow that spaciousness and that ease and that wider self-awareness that this 
is something I'm going through in service of my growth, that self-awareness piece can hold a container that just makes it worth it. It adds a positive flavor of meaningfulness to it that makes it bearable to go through the tough stuff. It, it really is not about numbing and comfortable. And it is this profound sense of there's an ease that's bigger than this discomfort. My favorite referrals was a client of mine referred their partner to me. And we had the ethical conversation about whether it was appropriate for me to be coaching both of them individually and what might be off topic for that sort of thing. And then the partner decided to work with me. And the first thing that I said was, okay, so now it's just the two of us. What did they say that made you think it would be worthwhile? And the new client's answer was, it won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Wow. And I thought, I love that. The the really good work is like that. I love that. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. I just, I, I feel, you know, my brain is buzzing and my heart is full. I know you have so much passion for all this work. And I want to ask you as we we start bringing this conversation to a close, and hopefully it's one of many more to come because I feel we barely scratched the surface. But what is it that fuels your passion? I know it's the intellectual curiosity. It's the sponge that you are and you're absorbing and you're learning. But what else is there for you? What stokes your fire? So it, it definitely started with the intellectual, there's no question about it, but it's actually my heart. It's actually that once I started really giving myself self-compassion and loving myself and my kids, no matter what, I learned to love the broken parts of everybody. And now it just, it soothes my soul to see somebody else come to a greater sense of I'm closer to who I want to be in this world today than I was yesterday. And it just, it's love. It's love. I'm sure that love is loving the broken parts. And there's something truly powerful about looking at our broken moments and thinking of them as moments of growth, because it perhaps allows us to love the broken moments to love the wandering around in the no man's land and not knowing where we're going to get to, but knowing that is part of the journey. There's something to, to love about that. However painful that wandering might be. It's what makes us unique is the different ways that we're broken, but it's also what we all have in common that we go through these things where we don't feel we've got our stuff together, where we're making it up as we go along. How many of us as children thought that the the adults around us were um, either complete idiots or totally all-knowing or flip-flopped in the (laughs) assessment between them? And and here we are as adults and we're like, sometimes we go one step at a time and some days we think we've got it together and some days we wonder why anybody trusts us. that's who we are. What haven't I asked you, Kate, that you'd love to share? In particular, I'd love to ask you because I always try with every one of these conversations to leave or invite people into a reflection, but also into some sort of experiment, into some sort of what are you going to do with this? For the listeners, self-reflection question, one of the ones that seems so pertinent to the conversation that we've been having is, is there an uncomfortable feeling that you could just give a little more permission to hang out in your life just to see what might happen if you gave it some space? Because we really have been talking about the magic that happens when we let ourselves actually not move away from those when we lean in. I love that. I don't love what it makes me think of (laughs) because I've got a few that I've been avoiding so Now I feel an ethical obligation to answer the question for myself after this conversation. And and I think the other piece, um, and maybe this is the question that might have been worth asking as well, is 
what is it that makes this possible without it being overwhelming? Because it can be overwhelming. Like we have to keep that container and we don't want to be stuck always feeling these uncomfortable emotions. And so part of it is self-compassion about, um, oh, I don't want to go there today. And that's, that's okay. Totally, that's totally fine. You don't want to go there today. Don't go there today. Maybe it will feel worth it tomorrow. Maybe it will never feel worth it. You get to choose. Thank you, Kate. It's It's been an intellectual and hot emotional connection delight all wrapped up together. I'm so grateful yeah. for your thoughts, for your wisdom, for opening the door to Dabrowski's work. I'd love more people to learn about uh, this incredible guy and what he's brought into the world. And I hope we continue to nerd out together. I know we will. Me too. And thank you so much for this conversation for you and me and also for for helping spread this because I think that there is a piece of, of this that can flesh out and really empower some deeper work for some of the, the places that you're already playing in and that you're already doing such wonderful work. So looking forward to more. Me too. And there'll be plenty of resources and connection to Kate. So you know where, where to find her and her beautiful work in the show notes. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot in this conversation, and it was so exciting seeing links between Dabrowski's perspectives on how adult development actually happens and some of my own research findings around the vital role of painful emotions. I've had so many takeaways. One interesting concept that I had not been aware of before is that of overexcitabilities. Looking back, my own intellectual overexcitability has helped fuel my drive for learning but has also meant that I have brought myself to the point of burnout many times, not knowing to balance my energy. Similarly, my emotional overexcitability makes me very tuned to other people's emotions, which helps tremendously when I'm coaching and facilitating, but can also be extremely depleting if I'm not careful to create pockets of space, quiet and self-care. Once I learned this concept from Kate, I've started to use it to make better sense of my own child's needs, as well as those of some of my clients. I do encourage you to read more about it. I've put some resources in the show notes, and especially if you're raising gifted or neurodivergent children, I think it'll really help you clarify and find ways through some of the gnarlier moments. I've also loved the honest and clear way Kate articulates the paradoxical mission of a coach, walking the fine line between challenge and support, as well as her criteria for referring clients to therapy. Finally, I'm taking home a version of her reflective question. What difficult emotion are you avoiding acknowledging or feeling right now and what might it teach you? I hope you reflect on that question for yourself or a version of it. Please check out the resources I added to the episode notes and I would love to read your comments in the comment section. Until next time, I hope you stay conscious, curious and wise.